Hey, before we dive into today's episode, I've got something really special to share with you. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you probably know that nothing excites me more than connecting with smart, ambitious people in our lifestyle investor community. So this May, I'm hosting a one-day live event right here in Austin, Texas. This will only be the second time we've ever opened our doors to non-mastermind members, and the last time we did it, attendees said it was the best event of 2023. The one-day event is a small, interactive workshop designed to be as impactful and actionable as possible. You'll be learning hands-on from some of the brightest minds and my personal go-to experts in the industry. I'm thrilled to welcome Garrett Gunderson, the brilliant and hilarious mind behind Money Unmasked and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Killing Sacred Cows. He's going to share his insights on how to grow your assets tax-free with life insurance. And you'll also get some time with Rob Dial, the mastermind behind the Mindset Mentor podcast, who will share with you how to unlock your true wealth potential. Then you'll get to participate in a special investment presentation, in-depth discussions, and breakout sessions on two crucial yet often overlooked topics, personalized tax strategies and wealth building. And lastly, for those of you who are serious about taking a more proactive approach, when you join us for the one-day live event, you'll be invited to a one-day vetting deals course happening the day before the main event. It's our most requested course, and we want to have this unique opportunity to learn directly from one of my personal friends and best resources, Hans Box, who vets the majority of our deals inside the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind. He'll walk you through his process so you can refine yours, along with plenty of commentary from me. We're keeping the size of this group super limited to ensure that you receive personal attention and get all your questions answered. So if you're ready to join us, head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live to secure your ticket. Once again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live. I can't wait to see you there. Now, let's get into today's episode. Do you want to invest in lifestyle investor deals, save more on taxes, find like-minded and highly successful people to spend time with and to learn from? Apply to join the world's most exclusive mastermind that turns everyday people into savvy investors. You'll get access to private deals that are not available to the public. These deals have been sourced by me personally and de-risked through preferred investment terms, giving you an unfair advantage that most people just don't get. To learn more and apply, visit lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash mastermind. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. You'll be hard-pressed to find someone who knows more about buying, scaling, and exiting companies than today's guest, Roland Frazier, one of the most creative and intelligent minds in business. Roland is the co-founder and or principal of five different Inc. Magazine's fastest-growing companies and a serial entrepreneur who's built or sold over 24 businesses with adjusted sales ranging from $3 million to just under $4 billion. Roland also advises business owners on leveraging, growing, scaling, and exiting their companies. He specializes in creative deal structuring and low and no money down acquisitions. Roland is a master in adding value, growing, scaling, and selling businesses he acquires for as much as 200 times his initial investment. In our conversation, we go over his strategies for acquiring companies with no money out of pocket, 
why relationships are the most important currency, and how to leverage debt to buy and scale any business to a multi-million dollar value. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Roland has a special gift for Lifestyle Investor Podcast listeners. He's giving you free access to his five-day EPIC Challenge, which is valued at $997. EPIC stands for Ethical Profits in Crisis. The challenge is built to show you the exact strategy Roland uses to found, acquire, scale, or sell over two dozen businesses with sales ranging from $3 million to just under $4 billion. The next epic challenge starts October 20th, 2022, so definitely don't wait to sign up. To get access, visit justindonald.com forward slash 103. Thanks for listening, and without further delay, my conversation with Roland Frazier. All right, Roland, so so good to have you on the show. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Justin. I appreciate it. Yeah, we've got uh, several mutual friends, and I've just heard so many great things about you. And obviously, we've known each other from a distance. I was on your show, now having you on mine, and I've had a chance to see you speak at a few different things. And so I'm excited to kind of dig in and unpack who you are, your story, all the cool stuff that you're doing, because I cannot go anywhere in the business world and not hear about you. <laughs> well, likewise, it's a good thing. It's a, it's nice that we finally got together to talk in person instead of talk, being talked about with each other. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, uh, I remember one time I was in San Diego hanging with Mike Koenigs and uh, we were going to try and connect. I think you were out of the country, maybe on a wine trip. And then I, I know you just got back from Napa, which is one of my favorite places I in did. the U.S. And to thank go. you for the connection to Mario as well. My pleasure. Well, he's he is like one of my favorite people to hang with, uh, my personal sommelier and just so knowledgeable. He, he's like the master at finding deals that if you wanted to, you know, if you want to turn around and flip it, you could, but it's just nice sitting on something where you're getting it way under value. Right. Uh, and when we went to Bordeaux, I mean, he hooked it up. It was just an incredible experience. And I know you're about to go there next month. I am. Yeah. I, and I, uh, I have him on my list of people to call. <laughs> That's awesome. Any places you for sure are going to go to when in Bordeaux? Um, I got connected to the people at Chateau Pavi. So I know we'll be at Pavi and Cheval Blanc. And then um, I think we already are in at Mouton Rothschild and Aubryon. I'm still working on Margot and Lafitte and a couple of the uh, couple of the others. That's awesome. Well, I, Mouton is one of my favorites. And if you're already going to Cheval Blanc, the, the same guy that's the president there is the president of uh, Chateau Yuquem. So uh, maybe see if you can uh, connect the dots there or Mario can help. Yeah, we went to Duquem last time. That's a beautiful place. It feels old, but it feels very French provincial kind of. And they got that nice big old tree out there and it's good. And I want, I feel bad because like I'm on their allocation list, but it's just like that wine is so sweet. It's hard to, you it know, is. it's hard to buy it in any quantity and think you're ever going to get to it. And then I can only, you can, you know, like, cause normally you're getting a 750, right? So it's hard to drink unless you've got a party of eight or 10. And so it's like, everything has to connect to, uh, to make that line up, but I, it's a great wine and a beautiful, beautiful place. And, um, and I think their why wine is actually pretty good too. The why is my favorite because I, I'm not much of a sweet drinker. I don't really yep. even like, you know, dessert wines, ports. That's not my thing. It's just too yeah. sweet for me. Uh, but their why is Awesome. I love that one. I think that's, you know, that that's their best one to me. Yeah. And it's nice that it's, I think, their lowest priced of any of their wines. It's too. basically free compared to the, you know, the one that they <laughs> that they're popular for. <laughs> no kidding. And then where where were you in Napa? Napa, um, I had uh, I had some business up there, but we got to sit down with uh, Chris Maybach from Maybach. That was that was pretty cool. And then um we hung out at Verite. And uh, Promontory and Bond, Abreu, and um, uh, I went to Opus. I hadn't been to Opus since it opened, so they built on an addition and everything. So it was kind of cool to go and uh, and visit there. And I I'm probably forgetting one or two. I've got a buddy that owns a restaurant up there, and so we'll sit down and he'll have like when they're doing their Burgundy Bordeaux buy, which they were doing this time. So I'll sit down with them and the 
distributors will all come in and we'll taste you know, 60, 70 wines, which they feel really bad because they're pouring these glasses. I'm like, please pour very small, but they're like, you know, giving you these decent pours and um, you just can't drink it. And so you've got these Grand Cru, you know, beautiful Burgundian wines and you're pouring them into the dump bucket and it just feels bad, but you know, you just can't do it. (laughs) Well, you know, if they do it, that it's not, I mean, I feel like it's poor form as well because it's like, oh, it's hard to dump this good stuff out. Maybe that's why I got into some trouble times where I haven't dumped it out. Right. Um, but uh, it's it's hard to let go of a good one. It, it is. Oh, and we went to uh, La Coya. I hadn't seen the new La Coya place up on Spring Mountain uh, since they moved out of Cardinal. So I got to check that out, too. As a matter of fact, Promontory, too. I went when Promontory was just just launching back in 08 and 09. And um, they'd moved from the founder's room over by Meadowood up into their own facility there too, which was, you know, so it was nice to get to see that. So I kind of got to like reconnect with some of the places that I hadn't been or that had moved or expanded. And that was pretty fun. And Verite's new place is just beautiful. Also checked out the uh, montage up in Heldsburg, which I had heard really good things about and Single Thread, which is their, you know, I guess the newest three Michelin star restaurant up there. So um, that was great. And kind of to contrast, we went to French Laundry as well. And man, I, like you can tell single thread is the new, you know, the newer style. And it was amazing and beautiful and very light, which was also nice. But I'll tell you at, at French Laundry, I probably had the best French Laundry meal that I've had in all the times I've been. So it was it was just a great trip overall. That is amazing. Well, th- my last trip uh, to Napa, we also went to French Laundry and, and mm-hmm. Keller came and hung out with us for a bit. We did yep. a wine cellar tour and ate in that one room that opens to the courtyard, their private room, which I'm sure uh, you've been in before. Yep. And uh, it was the best meal I've ever had there. Uh, so that was cool. And then we went to Single Thread as well. And that just blew our mind because it's like food art. The food is delicious, but it's like yeah. an artistic creation. Sometimes you don't even know on these platters that what it is is actually food that you're going to be eating. It's just that beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And they do a really good job. I, I think I think they do a like most of the Michelin places that are the three stars have really invested in the plate art as well. And that's something single thread, I think just knocked it out of the park on. And, you know, French laundry is very, very, very simple and minimalistic in the design of the plate plating. But, um, but the way they're cooking and I forget, it's not like, it's like Adobe is what I want to say, but it's like some other French name that they cook the fish and stuff in, in the pots. And then on the spread, when you walk in, they've got it like all laid out ready with food. That's I'm sure one of the things you're talking about, because you walk in and there's this like centerpiece and it, and you look at it and you go, oh, that's really cool. And then you're like, wait a minute, there's little tiny plates on there. And then there's all this cool stuff. And that then they come up and they're, they're like, there's, you know, 15 different things to try on that centerpiece. And, uh, and then it just goes on and on and on. So, and I love all the different plates that they've designed and acquired and stuff like that. So I think that's a, that's a great experience, but it's so funny because I think with all of the farming that goes on up there and then attracting, uh, because of all the wine, it attracts all of the foodies. That place is just a very, very special place. It is. It is hard. It is, I mean, it's always been kind of hard to get into French laundry. I mean, it's just as hard, if not harder to get into single thread. And then it's also a bed and breakfast. And so to get even, you know, an overnight there is incredibly challenging because it's so small. Yeah. I think they're like uh, five rooms. It's, yeah. it's very tiny, <laughs> but it is just a beautiful place. And, and uh, yeah, I just, it, it's a long meal, right? It's like a four hour meal, but you're not stuffed like you are at some of these other ones. Cause it's just not as hearty of dishes. So it's just a really cool experience. Yeah. We got, we were actually lucky because um, we in San Diego, we've got the the highest one we have here is a two star called uh, Addison. And we've been there and man, every time it's five and a half, even six hours, which means just like insanely long. I think like three and a half is kind of my high end expectation for time at a at a three star. But um, both of the restaurants, single thread was about two and a half hours total. And same thing for French Laundry. And so for me, like that's a perfect pacing because, you know, you're having some wine and having conversation, but, you know, sitting in the same place for two and a half, you know, three and a half, four and a half hours. It's a long, <laughs> long time. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad that you made it to Opus One. That's one that's on my list every time I'm in town. And for anyone watching, anyone listening, if you have not asked them to go into their library to give you different samples and, and tastings, they will do that. They This is not normal. They don't just roll it out. But if you request it, you can go back and drink some of their age 10, 15, 20-year-old uh, wine that is just drinking beautifully. I mean, you got to pay for it and it's pricey, but it's worth it. And every time we do it. Yeah, very cool. Well, uh, besides the fact that you are incredibly knowledgeable in wine, I know you're knowledgeable in so many other things and I'm excited to jump in. And one of the cool things I saw in your story that reminds me a lot of, of when I grew up is I got a job really early on. I became very independent very early on. You know, I got my first job when I was in seventh grade and by high school, I was covering everything, right? So my parents did not, I didn't need them to buy me anything. Uh, In your instance, your situation, you actually moved out. You were on your own at 16, Yep. totally independent. How did that happen? I don't know. I mean, nothing bad. It was actually, I had a great childhood and everything. So uh, it's just that I think that um, I was doing real estate. I was playing in a band. I was going to school. And so there was just an opportunity with, um, you know, there were extra houses around because of all that stuff. And so I had the opportunity to do that. My parents had divorced several years before. And so they were kind of doing their own thing. And um, it was uh, it was just um, so many things going on. I was just really busy. And, uh, you know, it, it just seemed like it made sense. I had the opportunity and I had a lot of bandmates that, you know, lived in band houses. So I was used to seeing people that were doing that kind of stuff. Most of my friends were older because I played in bands. And so my friends were like in their late twenties and early thirties. And, um, because I, uh, you know, I played keyboards and it was kind of hard to find keyboard players. So I, I was always, I always had an easy time getting in. And then all my friends ended up being old and, um, drinking and, you know, having fun. And, you know, so you kind of just needed it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, and, and it sounds like you were in a band, you know, until your forties, which is really cool, uh, that music you know, is, is that important? Just such a desire, such a passion for it. Um, I think that's awesome. And like professionally, I feel like you are kind of self-taught in a lot of things, but you also have really gone niche in a lot of areas too. So, um, before we get to like the, the business tycoon that you are, the serial entrepreneur, it wasn't always that way. So, uh, I think you started out in real estate, maybe becoming a realtor. And, and you know, I'm curious to hear the story of like how you kind of transitioned and pivoted from, you know, a, a young guy wanting to get into the business world to p- fully being in the business world. Yeah, I, I was um, I was really fortunate. My father was an investor and a tax attorney, and he had come up from nothing. My grandfather was a Baptist minister, never had any money, but was always uh, moving from place to place uh, as he ministered to different uh, different areas. So my father was one of the few people besides my grandfather that actually even graduated high school and my whole family across both sides. And um, I, uh, he had a conversation with me. So I, like, I had the influence of seeing he was a tax attorney, still is a tax attorney. And so I got to see lots of entrepreneurs because the kinds of people that come, uh, he wasn't really like a big corporate tax attorney. He had his own firm with some other people and, um, he handled mostly entrepreneurial type people. So when I'm growing up, I'm meeting all of these business people who are doing everything from uh, they own a gold mine, they own racehorses, they you know have a business that's a software based business or a record you know chain of record stores or whatever. And I'm like, this is really cool. These people, most of them don't wear suits. They come in and um, they've got all these interesting things that they're doing, and um, and they seem kind of cool. And I want to do that. I want to be like that. And then I would ask my dad, I was like, you know, what do you think? is important to be able to do that. And he said, well, um, and he uh, was a CPA and and attorney. And so he just said, you know, well, I'll tell you one thing. He said, if you don't know what you want to do, but you know you like business, then consider getting a degree in accounting and going to law school. Because he said, I use my accounting every day, knowing how to read a financial statement, knowing how, you know, the business works through the three primary things that drive a business from cash flow and profit and assets, 
all the way through understanding the law and particularly how taxes work because taxes can make and break deals. And I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I do enjoy playing music, but I don't think I'm going to be a rock star. I think my my chances of that are going to be, you know, uh, longer odds than I want to play. So uh, although one of the guys I played guitar with went on to have like multiple platinum albums and be in some big metal hair band for several years. So I decided to do that. And then I was like, well, he was a big real estate investor. And so um, when I was kind of, um, I think it was, it was like 16 in the back of his car that he he would always have some either set of cassette tapes that he was listening to, the so old it was, right? And uh, or a book. And one of the books he introduced me to was Robert Allen's Nothing Down. And I started reading, I was like, you can buy real estate with no money. That's crazy. I can't believe that. That's, you know, that's ridiculous. And at the time, interest rates were relatively high. And so Bob's book is talking about these 6% loans. And I was like, there's never going to be at 6% again. That was, you know, so it's really funny that they're like half of that, you know, or at least recently were. So that like, I got really obsessed with that and um, with real estate and decided, okay, well, I'll get my real estate license, but I couldn't do that till I was 18. So shortly after my 18th birthday, I went down, took the real estate exam, got my license, and then was like, okay, I'm going to start doing this real estate stuff. And then I was, I started doing it. I, I hung my license with somebody that he introduced me to. And um, I'm going around talking to people about listing their properties. I'm like, this sucks. This is awful. I didn't want to do this. So I was like, well, who can I talk to? that has lots and lots of real estate. So I don't have to keep talking to new people and I can build a few relationships. And so I started talking to developers, struck some relationships with those guys and learned how they did the business investing in property and um, got my insurance license when I was 19 so I could sell them key person insurance. I got my securities license when I was 20 so that I could actually raise money because I learned they did these things called syndications through limited partnerships and all this other stuff. And that really, while I was... I was kind of making my money by playing in bands. I was getting my education in school. And then I was um, doing this, this other stuff as a, um, you know, as a, I guess a second side hustle. And um, it was just always fascinating to me. And as I got, when I got my securities license, I got introduced to um, some people at Prudential Securities in New York. And uh, one of the investment bankers there took me under his wing and leverage buyouts were really big at the time. And he showed me that you could actually do the same kinds of deals that I was doing with no money out of pocket real estate with companies that so you could actually buy companies and they would pay for themselves between a combination of debt and the assets that they had. And um, I started doing that, just absolutely fell in love with that and started then applying a lot of the real estate stuff that I had learned to those deals and realized that you can do a lot. I mean, a lot without having to have a bunch of money. I, I continue to do that through law school and through my accounting degree and through law school. And um, then I practiced law. And when I was practicing law, I just kept doing those deals. And But the thing that was new that I found was that there were a lot of people that would come in and they they were these accidental entrepreneurs that had a really cool business, but didn't know much about business. But I had been to business school, right? And I had uh, I had gone and uh, and enrolled in an advanced tax program at University of San Diego, and I had my law degree, and I had you know all this business experience and knowledge from my dad. And um, so I was like, man, a lot of those people, I was like, you could you could actually do things a little differently and make a whole lot more money. And um, I I remember the very first time I talked to somebody, I was like, what if uh, you know what if instead of paying me for legal services, I, I think there's a big opportunity with your business. What if we just split 50-50 on the upside? Let me come in and help. And um, we generated an extra million eight in profits in that business over nine months. So I got 900,000, he got 900,000. And I was like, well, this beats the heck out of practicing law. So eventually I kind of moved to doing that full time. And now I'm you know, living that entrepreneurial investor life uh, as I have for, for a long time now. That's awesome. So when would you say that you became financially free? You didn't have to work. So you get to work today. You don't have to work and you love what you do. But when was it that you hit that number where you had enough income or you had enough passive income to just be set? Well, um, it depends on how you define it. But um, because I think like real estate to me 
unless you just have, I mean, actually, I guess if you have a portfolio of rental properties and you have property managers and you have somebody managing the assets, then you could call it passive income. But I, I kind of feel like most investments aren't passive that people say are passive. So um, I would say I was at that point around between 18 and 20 because I already had lots of real estate, but I wouldn't have ever been happy <laughs> just stopping at that point. It's like, I, I, I see these things where people are like, I'm going to retire. I retired at 30. And I'm like, why? What are you going to do for the rest of your life? I mean, if I guess if you want to dedicate your life to philanthropy or something like that, but like, I like business. So to me, this is the one of the most fun things that I do. And so like real estate to me, is something that requires management. And if it's if you're a responsible administrator or steward of your portfolio of assets of anything, you better be paying attention to them. Just look to Hollywood and all the people that that manage the money for the stars and stuff. So I feel like like I've been that way for decades and decades and decades, but I don't ever see not being actively involved because it's just so much fun. Yeah, I'm with you. I love business. It's a blast. Sometimes people are like, well, hey, if you don't have to work, why are you, you know, why, why do you have your mastermind? Why do you have uh, your podcasts? And, I, and my answer is that I love it. I, I would like to be doing this three days a week. This is just wonderful. Now, I like having extended weekends uh, each week. I like being able to do the things that I want to do. But it's important for me to have something that I can pour my energy into and uh, if I can do something that has an impact to help other people figure out some of the things that I did at a young age, things that you did, Roland, at a young age, that to me, just the liberation that I experienced knowing I didn't have to work, that I get to work, that I get to choose how and when and uh, the amount of hours, the you know where I'm working from, when I vacation for how long I do, like that to me is fulfilling work to help other people get to that same point. And I know you're the way. I think that it also being in the position that you described really helps with you having gratitude for what you have because you know that you don't have to do it. And therefore, you're grateful if you enjoy it that you get to do it. Right. That's, I think, a big important distinction. And so, and even if like I took a month off in um, January and February and hung out in London, spent the entire month there, and it was awesome but I couldn't help while I'm there, you know, doing some business stuff because you just can't help yourself because you like it. Right. It's like that, that'd be, to me, that'd be like, you know, um, you can't ever read a book again. Right. I, I love reading books and I love learning and business is this big continual book training session seminar that we get to participate in. That's always raising our level. And, um, so like, I think that not having to is really awesome. And then that really enhances your appreciation and gratitude and saying, you know, I really get to do this. I like that distinction. Yeah, it's to me, that's the game changer because then you can just shift all your attention to the thing that really fills you up the most. And maybe maybe you weren't doing that before and you can pivot to it. For me, I was actually doing it. Uh, so I just got to do it a little bit more on my terms. And I remember when I took a year off and our family traveled the globe, went to, you know, I don't know, I think we went to 13 different countries. It was incredible. And uh, I just was paying attention to what are the things that I do when I'm not paid to do anything. So I, I wake up, I've got no responsibilities. And by the way, it was hard to like not work or try to not work for, I mean, it was like that first month, it was hard to get out of the swing of working. And then you get out of it. And it's like, this is amazing. And then you get antsy, like I need to do something. So it's interesting, these waves that happen. But uh, the thing that I noticed that I did every day when I journaled, I would journal every day and just capture what it was that I did. And it was, I love to read. So I love to learn. I love to teach people what I'm learning or what I think I've figured out or done well with. Uh, I loved helping my friends achieve financial freedom. And then the thing that I was doing just, I mean, just purely out of joy was doing investment deals. And so that was it. That was my year off was those four things. And so it was interesting as I came back and said, hey, what's the next chapter for me that I was able to incorporate all that into a, a really cool mastermind that did all those things. It, it checked all those boxes because I'm going to do them anyway. 
Yeah. And, and I would add to that one of the things that, um, that I think you're good, really good at that is very pleasurable as well is, as, is connecting people. Like if you like people, if somebody asks, well, why would you do a mastermind if you've, you know, if you're allegedly financially sad, it's like, because I like people. And so if I have the opportunity to bring together a lot of people that I like to hang out and we all benefit from it and learn from each other and do better, why wouldn't I do that? That's, it's kind of like, it's crazy. So I think that people like, that's another thing is if you really enjoy human beings and contact and you're kind of social, uh, it sure is fun hanging out with a bunch of smart people who are also of the means to be able to do a lot of the things that you might like to do. Right. Yeah, no doubt at all. And, and when I think about, you know, a lot of people think that my superpower is investing. I actually don't think my superpower is investing. I think it's networking because yeah. most of the amazing deals that we get, and yeah, I've negotiated some cool structures and I've done some cool stuff. I know you're great at it and I want to get into some of that today, but most of the deals I've gotten, it has been through relationships. Like that's how I got into them. And, and maybe we were able to tweak some stuff also because there was a relationship there as well. And I know you've got a mastermind, you know, you, you're a part owner in War Room and, and I'm sure that has been, you know, very fulfilling and, and very educational. And you've got some amazing people. We've got many mutual friends, uh, with Brad Weimert and Eric Van Horn and many others that are part of that group that, uh, you and I are both connected to. We have nine masterminds that I'm part of. Oh right? my that, that I didn't realize we, it was nine. Yeah, because they're different. So just even just with uh, Ryan Dyson and Richard Lindner in our company's uh, so digital marketer, we we have a thing called the scalable operating system that's got seven levels, right? So the first two levels are marketing related. We have a mastermind with digital marketer for that. That's called the modern marketing mastermind. Then we have levels three, four, five which are really around the business operating system. And so for business, that's what War Room used to do. War Room, our last War Room is happening at the, I think in October. And the new focus around these levels for business is called Founders Board. And so that's really our entrepreneurial business mastermind, but really focused on your operating system and your ability to have the right people to compensate yourself the right way and build a good board of advisors and directors. And then the levels um, six and seven are really about acquisitions, exit, and then post-exit entrepreneurial investing. And so like just in that small holding company that owns those three companies, we have three separate masterminds because we found that it's really helpful to be focused on the thing that you're in right now, the, the, the stage of business or life that you're in. And then we've got a couple in the real estate world and a couple in the um, investing world in real estate. So like real estate brokerage, we've got one and real estate investors, we've got one. And um, so it's just, it's funny. I don't like go out of my way to think about doing them. We're about to launch one with Damon John also, but it just seems like there's all these different niche interests that we've got. And it's, you know, when you just start thinking, I want to be around people that are kind of focused on that right now, then you end up, you kind of can't help yourself because if you're a good networker like yourself, right, then you're just, you start talking to people and you're like, well, why don't we get together and meet? And then it's like, well, let's see if we can turn this into something that might have some legs in life to it. Oh, I love it. That's so fun. And there's nothing more fun than than connecting two people where, you know, some sort of magic happens there or you're even part of it and, and you get to do some amazing things and it's all, you know, within the the confines of people that, you want to do life with anyway. So why not do business as long as you can make it a win for everyone, right? Yeah, and and I think like for me, um, and my guess is I'd love to hear your take on it, but like for me, I get the most because I am members of several masterminds as well. And I don't think it's a, like, like I would not be happy just in one because there are these clusters of networks of people that people like you and, and you know, Joe Polish or... Um, uh, or, or whoever assemble. And, um, I'm probably not going to meet them unless I get to that mastermind. And at that mastermind, they've all traveled from all over the world to be there because some cool person has decided to create that opportunity for all those people to get together. And so I'm excited to invest in several of those to be able to have those connections. And for sure, I wouldn't have met half the people I know if I wasn't constantly making that investment, I just think that's like one of the absolute best things you can do in terms of bang for your buck. 
I mean, I don't know, you know, 30, 50, 100 grand a year to be able to connect to people that can make you tens of millions. It's kind of a no brainer for me. Total no brainer. And I'm with you. I'm part of a bunch. And that's the thing. When you think abundantly, sometimes it's, you know, when people are thinking more of money as like a scarce resource, it's like, oh, you know, I'd have to spend, you know, 30 or 50 or 100K to be part of that. That's a lot of money. But when you're thinking through the lens of abundance, it's it's like, well, no, actually, one conversation can make you that one connection. And it should. And it has for me. I can tell it has for you. Yeah. And and also, so so it works to me in a few ways, too. It's like, OK, let's say that you don't have anything going right now. Then to me, if it's me and I'm like, people ask that from time to time, it's like, what if you didn't have anything and you're getting started from scratch? I would absolutely beg, borrow, or steal to get myself in a mastermind because that is like the ultimate shortcut. Because now you've got people who have actually decided that they want to get together and most of them are successful. So, you know, I'm going to have to fake it till I make it when I get in there if I'm starting from scratch. But I'm going to see what can I do to add value to those people because I know I'm good at finding value that I can add. And if you can add value, then there's partnership opportunities. So like just... Being in a place where people are open to talk to people about those opportunities, because a lot of the people that are in your mastermind or, you know, in the ones that I belong to or, or, or ours might not be available if you just reached out, if you just hit them up with a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn or something like that. It's like, you know, I get spammed all the time from that stuff. And so, you know, I'm not really open at that time to do that. But when you're in a room with people that have made a decision and an investment to come there and at that point, they are open during that time, that's kind of like a limited window of opportunity to do deals with those guys. And so that's a, a huge advantage. Now, that's if you don't have anything going. If you've got something going, holy goodness, how can you not find a hundred grand to a million in a room full of super smart people? It's kind of like, you really kind of have to work to not do that. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a special offer that I created for the lifestyle investor community. When I look back at my investing journey, there's one specific investment in particular that was the spark to increasing my net worth and allowing me to leave my job to become a lifestyle investor. I'm talking about mobile home parks. Yes, mobile home parks. If you just cringed a little, that's exactly why these provide such a great opportunity because of the negative stigma and stereotype people might have. In reality, this is an incredible investment that you can get into with little or no money down. You can also quickly get a return on your capital. You can immediately cash flow on day one. You can hold it forever as a cash cow. You get accelerated depreciation to reduce or eliminate the taxes that you would owe. And often the seller will finance the deal so you don't need a bank. You can also buy them at the highest cap rate of all real estate, meaning it's the cheapest real estate to buy based on the income that it generates. And it's the lowest default rate of all real estate, meaning it's the safest asset class to own in real estate. I use this asset class to start my journey in real estate investing and grow my net worth to over eight figures all before I turned 40. And out of all the questions that people ask me, how do I get into mobile home parks is still the number one question that I get, which is why I put together this mobile home park masterclass. This is a paid class that I'm offering for a limited time only. For all the details, head over to justindonald.com forward slash MHP and watch the video, which outlines all the details about the class and exactly what you get when you sign up. You'll also hear the incredible success stories from students who have gone through my content and are now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in passive income. If you want to take the same first step that I did that helped me take both my wife and I from working full-time jobs to becoming lifestyle investors, Join me in my mobile home park masterclass and let's get started on your journey to becoming a lifestyle investor. Visit justindonald.com forward slash MHP for all the details. Totally. And the more value you add, the more people want to pour into you. So it's, yes. when you show up with your gifts and you try and help people, yep. it's amazing how people line up and say, hey, have you ever thought of this? Or, hey, we should team up and we should do this deal or this thing, this business. 
And I can't tell you how many offers I get because, and not just in my own mastermind, but in different masterminds, different groups, because of truly wanting to add value for no other purpose than, than I think everyone should do that wherever they are. But people want to reciprocate that. Yep. Yeah, that's 100%. cool. Well, I love that uh, you're so abundant in the way that you think. And and you you think about the most successful people. They're the ones that don't play it small with the amount of dollars to get into wherever it is to get into. What's the club? What's the group? What's the organization? A lot of people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to be part of a country club. I'm pretty sure they're not doing that to just golf, right? That's a very expensive golf membership. Uh, it's for the relationships. And so you can you can have access to people that play at just as high of a level, if not higher of a level, who just don't care about golf in these different masterminds. And so, yeah, I think it's neat. I think it like it goes across the board. Whenever you're looking to to do the next thing that you're going to do, whether it's in the existing business that you've got or or into a new thing, I have always tried to find the paid channel of access. I don't want the free channel of access because then I'm asking, I'm not starting with the give. I like it when I can create a situation where the person that I want to connect with is in a service mentality and they are if they've created a paid channel of access. So can I hire them to speak? Can I hire them to consult? Can I hire them to do whatever it is that I need to do? Or have they opened a program, a course, a high-level training? Not just a course that's like a low-end thing. It's got to be the one where I get to talk to them. So I'm always going to say, okay, I know all that stuff. And I have people that come to me, and I'm sure you do too. It's all. It's like, you know, okay, I know you've got this training on this thing. I want to know how to do that, but I don't, I'm never going to go through it. So can I just pay you a bunch of money to sit down and talk to you? Absolutely, you can, Right. <laughs> And that to me is like, there's almost always a paid channel for access that exists. Even if you're trying to go to lunch with Warren Buffett, it might cost you a couple million dollars. And so that might not be a channel that is immediately available to you, but there are paid channels for access to almost anyone. So if you start thinking about that and you say, okay, well, who are who the top 100 people that I want to connect with? And then you say, okay, I want to find out how many of those people have a paid channel of direct access and how many of those channels are affordable to me right now? And then just start knocking them out. You can actually connect with almost anyone you want. And you'll find probably too, 10% of the way through that list, some of those people are going to connect you with the other people that you need. And then they become the connection that then identifies a paid channel of access that you didn't even know existed, which might be as simple as give $10,000 to this person's charity That's and right. hang out with them at their thing. Or like when we met um, William Shatner, we met him through the paid channel of access of hiring him to speak at one of our events. Then I got to talking with him and um, he's got this passion project that he's done for, you know, a thousand years now called the um, holiday charity horse show. And I started talking to him about it and he invited us out. And so we, we came, we bought some stuff at the auction and then we saw that it wasn't terribly well run. And so we we're like, man, I think we could help you with this if you'd like. So we ended up running it for four or five years uh, for him. Awesome. And then through that met like all of the people in his network because he's like, come to the house and watch football and meet these people, right? It's it's just, it's so cool how that, if you if you start with what's the PCA, right? What's the paid channel of access that that leads to so many other opportunities? Yeah, I think that's just such a great framework. Uh, you can pay for it individually you can get access as a group but yeah and and by the way for the people that don't need your money the paid channel of access is their foundation is their charity that they care the most about like a lot of the people that we you know I've met uh, or I've done work with they don't want the money themselves the money goes to their organization whatever it is their organization of choice which is cool so uh one of the things that you had mentioned earlier you talked about leverage buyouts um also referred to as lbos i'd love to have you expand on what that is to give our audience a better understanding of that specific niche cuz this is a, a very interesting play uh, and you had said it before, one of the things you love to do is is no cash down deals. And I'd love to dial in you know, to some more of the details there. But often these LBOs are a no cash deal or a low cash deal. And I'd love to have you share some of your experiences there and what that specifically is. 
Sure. So really, that's just one of a whole bunch of strategies. And there's over 200 of those that we've been able to identify over the years to acquire a company without having to come out of pocket for it. And so my first exposure to it was back in the days when KKR was uh, was doing its acquisitions. And then there's this giant deal with America Online that got acquired and it was all this debt. And so that's really just taking a look at what are the assets that exist in a business and saying, is there the ability to leverage these assets to generate enough debt to acquire the company? That's really what that's about, right? I'm going to buy out the company and I'm going to do it using leverage, which is another word for debt. And I'm going to use leverage on the assets that already exist in the company that have capacity to help me borrow enough to generate the acquisition price. And so that was like a very eye-opening thing. It's like you, you're literally using, and so it's not like a super earth-shaking creative, off-the-wall, uber-niche strategy. It was, in the 80s, mainstream. It was kind of the thing that they were using in the investment banking world to do these deals. And um, and it's still super popular. And it kind of comes and goes in popularity, and they might slap a different name on it or something like that. But, but using debt to acquire companies is really, really a great strategy. And so... Now we've got debt is extremely cheap still, you know, compared to what it has cost historically. And so right now, like, think about how expensive it is if you're going to raise money to buy a company or even raise money to fund your company. Like you need money. You know, most people, the culture is, well, let me, let me do a raise. Let me do a round. Let me, uh, or a startup is saying, let me go and find investors. But if you can create the same capital or the same cash that you need to do whatever it is that you're going to do with that investment through debt, as opposed to having equity people come in, it's so much less expensive. Equity is the most expensive form of capital you'll ever generate. So um, debt can be repaid from the profits and then it's gone. Shareholders are forever, right? Until you buy them out. So I think that's a really, really great strategy, but it's just one. And so like thinking more mainstream for A lot of the people that might be listening is like really super, super simple for acquisition is seller financing, also a form of debt. And also could be, it could be argued that's a, that is a leveraged buyout, but there's not really the asset that you're leveraging there is the company that you're buying as a whole. So it's generally the equity or the assets of the company that you're buying then serve as the collateral for the loan that the selling shareholder or owner is going to give to you to finance the acquisition of the business. And um, what I'll typically do, kind of like my opening round when I'm talking to a seller is, let's do 80% as seller financing and 20% as an earnout, So that assuming that the company continues to do what we all think it's going to do for the next couple of years, then I'll pay you that last 20%. But that's my hedge. And my ability to see, do you have faith that the company is going to do that for the next couple of years? So you'll only get that 20% if the company does that well, the other 80% I'd like you to finance over eight or 10 years. And that's my opener. And sometimes it's like, okay. And sometimes it's like, oh, heck no. You know, I want hundred percent cash, but then it's like, okay, now we're negotiating, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and it's great just to start somewhere. I feel like if you're going to start somewhere, start with the most ideal scenario for you. And then move from there as you need, because at the end of the day, the goal of a negotiation is to figure out what the other person wants. And often what the other person wants is different than what you want. So very likely you can structure a deal that's super advantageous for you because they want a different outcome in that transaction. Yeah. And and I think that's a great place to talk about the law of price and terms, right? So I don't generally negotiate that much on the price if I'm acquiring because the seller has a price that they want to get. And so I'm like, okay, look, if I can get you the price that you want, then the law of price and terms is your price, my terms, right? If you want your price and your terms, that's just not fair. You want your price plus all cash. You know, if you want all cash, then it's going to be my price, which is going to be a lot lower. But I'd love to work with you and collaborate. And I I use collaborate instead of negotiate with when I'm talking to people. It's like, you know, hey, let's collaborate because I'm really here to get you that thing you want, which is your price. And as you pointed out, they want the price. So then it's like, okay, well, I want my terms and you want the price. Those are not mutually exclusive. 
What's really cool about that is we can both get what we want out of this. So let's see how we can collaborate on the terms part to figure out what terms will also satisfy what you expect to do with the money after you close. Because a lot of people don't know. A lot of people are going to take the money and do something with it that's going to return a lot less than I'd be willing to return. So it's like, well, why don't you just invest in me and your company that you already have that you know all of the skeletons in the closet for and get maybe 6% on your money instead of 2%, you know? So what if I can give you three times what you're going to get by sticking the money in the bank or in some super safe investment that you're thinking about retiring on? And by the way, if I don't perform, you can have the whole company back and sell it again, right? That's kind of a good, sexy, let's all get what we want out of it, uh, I think, way to approach it. I love that. And by the way, when people will defer compensation, when they'll do you know, an earn out, they'll sell or finance a deal. I always have a lot of confidence that, okay, this deal is probably a good deal. If they're 100%. willing to do this, like I actually want to buy it even more now. It's a great filter. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, something that you talk about is strategy versus tactics. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think both are important, but I think that there's generally a strong over-reliance at least in the circles that I have traveled in on tactics versus strategy. And so a tactic might be, let's use Robin's Egg Blue for the background of this web page because we find that Robin's Egg Blue converts at a 16% higher conversion rate than the other colors that we've tested. And let's use an orange button instead of a red button because we tested that. That to me is a is a tactical thing. Whereas a strategy is and and by the way, most tactics I have found are very short-lived and their lifespan is defined by the number of people that know about them. So that's a kind of a secrecy type thing. You know, hey, we found that Robin's Egg Blue tests this much more. So, you know, do that, you know, but then everybody does that and then it becomes not effective anymore. So the shelf life is is very limited. Whereas the strategy of, you know, let's build a replicable, repeatable pattern of how we approach going into new markets like Nike did, right? Nike said, let's go after a category of sport. And the way that we're going to go after each new category of sport is the way that we accidentally kind of got running, which is we're going to do grassroots by getting it to the coaches that will get it to the athletes that will then start wearing it. And then those people will win competitions. And then when we have enough money from that, we'll invest in the lead athletes to be sponsors. And maybe we'll even cut them their own brand and a shoe that's named after them. And then you know what we're going to do? We're going to go into the next category and we're going to continue to blow that. Oh, and by the way, we'll go from shoes to clothing and you know so on and so forth. And so they, you know, the, I love the study of Nike's success arc versus Reebok's because Reebok was very tactical and where it was kind of just like, what can we do right now that's going to work? Let's we we had luck in aerobics. We got lucky in aerobics. Nike got lucky in running, right? So then after that, what did they do? Well, Nike built this repeatable thing and just owns all sports now. And um, I'm sure there's Nike pickleball stuff and other sports that are on the you know on the cusp, right? But Reebok has been sold multiple times and um, is now the footnote on some private equity, you know, balance sheet, as far as I know. And I got to talk to the uh, to the founder of Reebok, and he was like, you know, man, I just I just was kind of trying to stay alive, and both of them were. You know, Phil Knight was also trying to stay alive, but um, the tactical approach of Reebok was let's just keep finding out like what's working for people and let's try to do that. It's like get distributors and let's do this. And here's what we do based on uh, what everybody else is doing. And that it eventually it just fell apart because there wasn't any um, governing strategy to guide how are they going to grow for the long term. And Nike had that. And so that's the multi, multi, multi-billion dollar valuation versus the you know footnote on a financial statement. So I think that applies to everything in our, in our businesses is that if we're really focused on what can we do that will hold up for the long run? That's our strategy. And then we can look at what tactics will help us enable the strategy. I think that's great. It's like, does then because then it becomes a filter. And you can say, I went to this mastermind and I got 32 tactics, right? And now I have a strategy 
do those tactics fit my strategy and move it forward or not? If they don't, then I probably don't want to worry about them. But if they do, then cool, let's use that. But they're working hand in hand. You can't, to me, long-term have great success without some overarching strategy. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that's an, it's incredible. And I love the way that you describe it. And for anyone that hasn't read the book, Shoe Dog, it's just an incredible story. It's Nike's story, Phil Knight's story. And uh, it's so worth the read. I just, it's one of my favorite books. Read that and then read, I think the other one, I, I can't remember the gentleman's name. I think it's Shoemaker, but uh, it's, which is hard to Google, by the way. It's like you Google Shoe Dog, it's like, right, comes right up, just shows you like, good strategy there, you know, shoemaker, eh, there's a million of this, like shoemakers, you know? So, uh, but yeah, but I love, by the way, reading contrasting success story books together. I think that's a, like when you're looking at a biography, particularly corporate biographies, like take the one that was the success and take the one that was the study and failure and see then what were the different points that caused one to take off and one to not so much. Now, that's a cool idea. I love that. I'm going to have to try uh, doing that. Sometimes I'll read them back to back, but uh, to kind of do a side-by-side is neat. It's pretty cool. And you've got a book. So in our mastermind, I'm sure you've heard of the book, Buy Then Build by Walker Dival. So he's a member of the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind, and I love his stuff. And you've got a book that not only is about buying versus starting, right? It's just so much easier. There's, I mean, we could go through tons of reasons here, but I want to highlight your book because your book's not just about buying a business, but it's actually zero down. Buying, not just buying a business. How do you buy a business with no money down? And I'd love for you to share you know, a few thoughts on that uh, as we wrap things up. Sure. So, so what specifically would you like for me to talk about? Well, Overall, I mean, is there a, a quick strategy that we haven't covered that uh, would be that you could mention, I don't know, some some keys to success there to get people started, to get their wheels turning a little bit? Because most people think, I've got no money, I can't do it, I got to wait till I have money. And that's when I got started, that's how I thought about it too. Yeah, so, so I think that's like, well, as with most breakthroughs, it's mindset-based, right? So I think that mindset is, you can go the traditional way and the traditional way is going to be that I'm going to go to a bank. I've got a business that I want to acquire. Well, let's let's do two things. First, I want to get in business. Okay, what do I do? Well, I'm going to start it. Okay, great. Why? Well, I'm going to start it because uh, I guess because you start businesses to get in. Well, why not? Why don't you buy one? And uh, Walker has that, I believe, covered in his book pretty well as well, which is you know, well, there's a million advantages to having something that already has brand recognition, already has customers, systems, you know, profits, sales, employees, all of those kinds of things, credit, right? A proven product or service, a list of customers, all of those things are already present in a business that already exists. So if you start from scratch, it's going to take you a a lot of momentum or or a lot of uh, movement or inertia to get to a momentum that a business that already exists already has. And it's probably not that much different in terms of the investment you need to make to acquire a business versus start one from scratch. So then I say, okay, well, now I wanna buy a business, so I need money. Well, traditionally you would say, yes, I do. This business I wanna buy, it's making, $500,000 a year and the seller wants five times that. So they want two and a half million dollars. I don't have two and a half million dollars sitting around in the bank. I can't buy that. You know, well, you could go to a bank and borrow that and maybe the bank would finance that if the business is doing well enough, but they're probably going to want personal guarantees from you and all kinds of other things. You could go to the small business administration and the small business administration be willing to finance a good chunk of it. They're going to ask you to come up with some too. And maybe you have that or maybe you don't. But then to me, it's like, well, what else could I do? And that is like, it came from the, um, and I never can remember his name, but uh, it came from the Toyota manufacturing system to me reading about that and saying, you know, there's the five whys. And if something fails, you ask, why did it fail? And then you go and ask that question five times with each answer you get, and you'll probably get to the root of the problem. And so I was like, well, I wonder if you could do that with business. And so I call it the five buys, right? So what, okay, buy one is, pay cash. Buy two is I'm going to go to the bank. Okay. Now I'm out of traditional ways to do that. So what else can I do? Well, I could raise money. Okay. Well, that's still fairly traditional and I don't have a bunch of contacts and no bunch of rich people. So, you know, what if I can't do that either? 
great. Now I've got to start getting creative. And that first level of creativity is to me the 80-20. You know, okay, seller, would you be willing to carry 80% and would you be willing to do a 20% earnout? If they say, yes, I've got that. If they say no, then I'd be like, well, what would you be willing to do? Well, maybe I'd be willing to do a 20% seller financing and a 10% earnout. Okay, great. Well, then I've already got 30% of what I need. So I'm only... 70% away. Yeah, uh, Sakichi Toyota, thank you, uh, is the is the five wise guy. Great, I would read everything by him. So now I've, I'm 30% of the way there. Well, that's kind of cool. So if I'm 30% of the way towards a $2.5 million business, I've found $750,000 of financing just by talking to the seller one time or two. So what else can I do? And so then I start looking at, from my leverage buyout experience, I'm going to say, okay, well, what other assets are there that someone might be willing to lend on in the business. And I'll start kind of running down that. So there's all kinds of what they call ABL lenders, asset-based lenders that will lend. So if there's equipment that's there or um, uh, machinery or cars or computers and desks even and things like that, there are asset-based lenders that will lend you a portion of the value of those things. But then there's also inventory. So maybe there's inventory that exists and inventory financing is popular. Or maybe I'll ask the seller to inventory finance and say, hey, tell you what, why don't you keep the title to the inventory? We'll just do a few carve outs of things like inventory and you'll continue to own that and I'll just pay you as that inventory sells. How about that? right? That way I'll get you your price because I want to get you your price. We're in this together to get you your price. So inventory financing, either through a third party or through the seller can be a great way to do that. Maybe there's accounts receivable, people that owe the business money, and I can go to factors and factor that. These are all very, very traditional ways of doing things, but stacking them on top of each other. So I call it deal stack. So we got 30% of the way there with a conversation with the seller. Maybe we do these things and we find another 40%. Now we're 70% of the way to our $2.5 million acquisition. We now only need to find another $750,000. You know, well, that's a lot of money. Okay. Well, maybe it is. Let's see what else we can do. So then I'll continue looking. Maybe a lot of businesses have good, consistent revenue that have been around for a long time. And so maybe there's the ability to do revenue-based financing. American Express, several merchants, Lighter.com, a lot of those people will do revenue-based financing. So they'll fund the company based on its historical revenue. And so maybe I can get another 10% there. Great, I'm only 20% of the way now, right, away now. And so then I'll say, well, who's going to run this thing? Because I don't want to run it. I'm an investor right? And the seller's out of here when it's done. Okay, well, maybe um, maybe some of the people that are there are qualified to run it. And if I want them to stay and not great resignation me away and job hop, then I probably ought to see if I could get them to get some skin in the game and also have a chance to benefit from what we do with the company so that we're going to work together as a team to sell the thing. And so maybe I'll give the COO or general manager or the bookkeeper or accountant or um, whoever is the head, you know, whoever the key people there, maybe I can get them to invest 20%. Very often I can. And they've got, how, well, how do those people have money? Well, they've got friends, you know, they had crypto back in the day when crypto was worth more than it is right now. Uh, but maybe, maybe tomorrow it'll be worth twice what it is now because that's how that goes. Um, they've got retirement accounts. They've got friends and family. They've got houses, you know, so there's all kinds of things that those people probably have enough money to make a small investment in the company. And very often, if if it's a, I've got to get 20% down because that's what the seller has always heard they need to get and I don't want to come up with it, I'll just go and get it from the people who are in the company already. And now I've got buy-in, plus I own 80% of the company with no money out of pocket and my key people aren't going anywhere because now they've got some pretty significant investment in the company. And so it's just going through all of those kinds of things to see what are the opportunities? And like I said, I've, I'm at, I think it's 224 of them right now, right? That, that I've identified that I can stack one on top of the other to be able to acquire this thing. And then if I'm doing that in a separate entity, which is, is generally referred to as an SPV, a special purpose vehicle, fancy legal name for a company that just means a corporation or an LLC basically, right? So if I do all that in there, then I have no personal liability I didn't have to personally guarantee anything with a bank. I won't with the seller. And I didn't have to personally guarantee anything with the SBA. So now I've gone beyond those kind of 
boring, vanilla, not creative, traditional ways to get things funded. I don't have a bunch of other investors that are just financial people looking for a return. I haven't had to hit up my friends and family to invest in my deal. And the two people that did invest were key people in the company. And now I've got this thing that is a profitable existing company that would have cost me two and a half million dollars out of pocket and I didn't have to come out of pocket at all. So that's like, that's a few things that you could do to do something like that. Roll, and that's incredible. So you just rattled off like 20 different things and you said you have about 224 of them, which is so cool. I can't wait for people to dig into your book. And just hearing you talk about it is, is so fun. And I love seeing you use your creative energy on the deal structure side of things. I love doing that too. And it sounds like you have a bunch of cool stuff that I I, I want to take and borrow. And there are some things that I've done that uh, prior to doing it, I'd never heard of. And it's just fun to kind of, you know, figure out what's going to work and what's not going to work. And for anyone that's unfamiliar, there's a specialty lender for virtually everything. So whatever it is that you need money for, if it is a legit opportunity, you'll know it because someone will give you money for it. And it will be at different interest rates, depending on the level of risk, depending on the level of collateral. Um, But in almost everything, you can get some form of institutional money. But I love that you're going even beyond that. So most people think of like, oh, there's a bank. Oh, the bank said, no, okay, I can't get it versus like all the different specialty lenders. But you're going even beyond those specialty lenders with some unique uh, strategies. And I love that. Very cool. So uh, where can my audience learn more about you, Roland? So I am everywhere on social at forward slash Roland Frazier, R-O-L-A-N-D-F-R-A-S-I-E-R. So whether it's LinkedIn or TikTok or YouTube, I do content across all of those channels. I have podcasts like you do that you've been on called Business Launch. And then um, pretty much all of the stuff in that, what we've been talking about is under epicnetwork.com, which is where we do like consulting for equity and acquisitions and exits and all that sort of stuff. And specifically for your, you know, for everybody that's listening, I do almost every month a challenge, a five-day challenge where we go through how can you identify five companies that you could acquire for no money out of pocket or little, little or no money out of pocket. Well, this is so much fun. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and uh, sharing so many of your strategies and so many of your hacks that have taken you years to figure out or perfect. Uh, This has been awesome. And I just want to wrap things up today as I do every single week that we get together, which is this. What's one step you can take today to move towards financial freedom and move towards a life that you truly desire that's on your terms, a life that's not on default or by default, but rather by design. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.